Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them. Genesis chapter 23 is where we are. Genesis chapter 23, and I've entitled our Bible study, Seasons of Loss. Seasons of Loss. And that's where Abraham really is in chapter 23. He's in a season of life where losing those whom he loves is pressing upon him. So far, Abraham has lost a lot in his relationship with the Lord. He's had to leave behind so much in his life for that upward call of God. He lost his homeland as God called him out. He lost his family, most of his family that he left behind. Then in a very personal way, he lost Lot and Lot's family. He lost Ishmael, his son. He, in his heart, we learned last time, he lost his son Isaac And now in this chapter, he loses his beloved wife to death. And I think there's a spiritual principle here before we even get into the text to be learned from us for sure tonight. And I'm reminded, hold your place in Genesis. I asked you to open there, but turn over to Matthew 16. Whenever we talk about loss, let's put it in a broader context of the teachings of Jesus, not just in the loss through death, or in the loss of leaving a homeland, or leaving something familiar. But let's go deeper before we get into the text today. In Matthew chapter 16, I'm reminded of a teaching that Jesus gave to us on the topic of loss. And when you get there, go with me to verse 24. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires, notice, to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And that's the key in following Jesus is loss. And coming to terms with the significant loss that you and I need to experience in truly following Jesus. In the New King James, it describes as denying yourself. That's an important concept to understand, an important teaching. The word deny here in the Greek literally means to disown. If you're taking notes, it's good to jot this down because we don't often expand it. But the Greek word literally means to disown or disregard or forsake, or to renounce, or reject, or refuse, or restrain, or to do without. I mean, if you think about and plug that into the teachings of Jesus so that we might understand, if anyone desires to come after me, let him disown himself. Let him disregard himself. Let her forsake herself, or renounce herself or reject herself, or refuse, or restrain, or do without. It speaks of a life of subduing. And it's not a denial of something. Jesus says, deny it all. And don't read the text within the cultural norms of these definitions, as if now somehow this is to think so lowly of yourself, or to put yourself down, or to live, as the world might say, with some low self-esteem. The highest esteem that we have is in Christ to value what he's done in our lives. And so this isn't an instruction to beat yourself up and become a doormat, even as we'll learn in Sarah's life, but rather to understand the right priorities. That when you and I are on the throne of our lives, calling all the shots, we're in the wrong place and the wrong position. We're not going to experience the life of Christ when we're living for ourselves first. Jesus says, deny it all, dethrone yourself, and remember that Jesus now is on the throne. The person who abandons this life, 
who sacrifices in this life, who gives all that she has and all that she is for Christ is the one that saves their life, the one that lives their life, the one that enjoys their life. But Jesus says the one that keeps their life, the one that's fighting for their life, the one that is trying to keep everything that they have and get more and seek more and more from this temporary life is going to lose it all and not have any type of joy along the way. When you and I were born again, we were born into a life of loss. And sometimes that's painful loss, like through grief and sorrow and sadness and the loss of loved ones and death. But there's a deeper loss, and that's the loss of life in the spiritual realm. You were born again into a loss so contrary to the world, a loss of, of your own life to be replaced with the life of Christ. And we quote it often, but let me read it to you in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus would say, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And although Abraham is living in the old covenant, looking forward to the coming of Messiah, his life of faith, Abraham's life of faith, is truly a picture of what Jesus would teach many years later. Abraham is living the teachings of Christ before he teaches them because he's a friend of God. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God in human flesh, before he ever teaches in, in his human body, Abraham's living these things out in the old covenant because he's a friend of God. It's true. And as we live in Christ, and as we live for him, and we abide in him, we will experience loss after loss after loss. And I have to say, in the very beginning, some of the minor losses, they seem so big. God's calling you to a new level of faith, but you know what you think you're leaving behind is, oh, no, no, I can't ever give that up. I, I could never live without that. And then the Lord gives you a confirmation. He gives you the faith that you need to make the decision. And then you step out in faith into a newness, as we were reading in the psalm uh, this last weekend, from glory to glory, from strength to strength. But it takes a long time to believe it because the first step is so scary. It's like, no, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to turn my back on that. What am I going to do without that? And then you take the step of faith and you go, oh man, I didn't need that at all. God has something so much greater for me. There's so much ahead for me. He's going to take me from glory to glory forward and not backwards. But loss is painful. And we do go through the process of having to deal with pain and the pain of loss. Notice with me now in chapter, with that in mind, in chapter 23, Sarah, verse 1, lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. And so Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Sarah dies at 127 years old, and Abraham is 137 at this time, and Sarah dies. And I want you to note that she dies in Hebron. The word Hebron means fellowship or communion. And what a beautiful picture of a place to take your last breath, and a place of communion and fellowship with the Lord. She dies in the place of promise, and she dies in a place of fellowship. What a sweet place to be. And what an example Sarah is of a godly woman. Just a wonderful example to look at and to watch and to see as we will today. And with the loss of his wife, it says here that Abraham came to mourn and to weep. And this is the first mention of weeping in the scriptures, a time of sorrow and loss. They've been together now almost 80 years. Can you imagine? 80 years of being together. And he has lost his life partner, his wife. He spent his life with her. They've gone through a lot together. And those of you that have been married for a while, I want, I'm prepping you. This is a prep for an amen. Even on the radio, you can say it loud on the radio. But those of you that have been together for a while, you've been through a lot. Yes, yes, it's true. Every marriage has. How about 80 years worth? <laughs> and we know a little bit, as we were praying today about dark areas, certainly there are parts of your life that we don't know about, but imagine if it was a page in the scriptures 
And we've had some pages in the life of Abraham and Sarah that peel back the curtains of their private life and their personal life and their home life and what marriage really looks like at times. It's not easy and it's not always happy. And husbands don't always make the wise choices. Oh, by the way, wives don't always make the wise choices either. And we've gained insight on what a real family looks like through this man of faith, through this friend of God. And they've been together a long time and gone through a lot together. They put up with each other's failings. They've enjoyed each other's company. Sarah hung in there with her husband. And that's an important principle. She hung in there in times... I think as we are reading, we might have even just read the text and go, I don't think I could do that. I'm like, maybe you couldn't. It would require grace. It required grace for Sarah to hang in with Abraham. And maybe you couldn't. Maybe in those times where God brings you to the end of yourself, within your marriage, within your home, within your life, and you just get to the place to go, maybe I couldn't do that. And you're reading through the scriptures or you're just kind of assessing your life and you're like, okay, maybe you couldn't. But through the power of God, all things are possible. So yeah, maybe you can't do it. What's impossible with man is possible with God. And you could come to that conclusion. I mean, it was hard. It was challenging. But they made it through all the way to the end. And we can understand, I think, to some degree, as we followed the life of Abraham, previously Abram and Sarai, and then when their names are changed to Abraham and Sarah, I think we can understand in a practical way how God stuck it out with Abraham, how he carried it along because of the character and the nature of God. And I, I can understand that. But let me ask you a question. How is it that Sarah stuck it out with him? What was required in her life? Of course, the Bible is all about the character and the nature of God, but we also see it lived out in the lives of men and women. And what about Sarah? Why did she stick it out with him? Why did she continue on? I mean, of course, we have to remember, we've got to take the Bible and make sure that we read it first and foremost in the time and culture in which it was written. So culturally, I can see that it was necessary or even needful for her to stick around. It would have been a very challenging, hard life, if not impossible, to separate from Abraham. So culturally, yes. But what about humanly? Why don't we read the humanity into this as if we're in the story? And how did she stick it out? For, here's a couple of notes to consider. Number one, she was a woman of God. I know Abraham was a man of faith. And, and it is clearly, but you know what? Sarah, she was a woman of faith. <laughs> she was a woman of God. She had her own personal walk. She had her own relationship with God. She was married to Abraham, but she was Sarai and Sarah first. So she had her own relationship with God. The Bible says as much in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11, by faith, Sarah. She had such a strong relationship with God, she made it into the hall of faith, gang. The hall of faith. And by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. That's the kind of relationship. She judged God faithful whom had promised. Even though she laughed, and she experienced doubt, the humanity that you and I have, chuckled at the promise of God. And even in the chuckle, she believed. And she trusted God. Secondly, let's ask, ask, we ask the question, why did she stick it out with Abraham? Number one, she had her own personal walk with the Lord. She's a woman of God. Number two, she loved her husband. You ask any marriage of why did they last so long, with, even if you know some of the details about the hurt and pain that's shared in that marriage. And I'll tell you what, the answer is going to be because I loved him. I loved her. And you know, in the agape love of God, there's forgiveness. And anyone will tell you in any long-term relationship, the only way you make it to long-term relationships, marriage, friendships, or whatever, is a lot of forgiveness and a lot of humility. You're not going to make it any other way. She loved her husband and lived with him you could even put this maybe as a third one, but you could put it together. Not only did she love Abraham, but number three, she lived with him in the power of God. 
And who knows the episodes where the power of God was demonstrated in her life, but you know she made it and stuck it out for 80 years with this guy because of the presence and power of God. And what a beautiful woman. The Bible says, and some of you may be familiar with this passage, it's too bad, it gets a bad rap. Sarah gets a bad rap. Uh, but in 1 Peter chapter 3, it says in verse 6, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. And it's just too bad that this passage of Scripture is read with 20th century and now 21st century eyes. And it's read within a context of where Sarah's kind of seen as a pushover or she's made fun or as a doormat, or I would never call my husband Lord. What is Sarah's problem? Or a husband will take this and wins a lot. When you walk in the door, you call me Lord. I mean, it's just, it, it, you know, when we, we kind of have fun with the Bible that way, we miss what God is trying to teach us. The, the, the kind of fun that God wants from this passage is for you and I, those of us that are married, those that will be married, the kind of fun that God desires from us is for us to walk in the spirit and enjoy the fruit of the spirit in marriage. And how is it possible that Sarah could even say that she obeyed Abraham or another way, she submitted to Abraham. She saw the role when it says calling him Lord, it was not a position where he was more valuable or more important than her, but she understood the role in which God placed her in marriage. And she respected her husband. And out of that respect, they made it 80 years. She was a faithful, and here to summarize it, she's a faithful, loyal, loving wife to her husband. It's kind of even dumb to say this, but it needs to be said. It's a good thing to be a wife. And it's a good thing as a wife to follow in the footsteps of Sarah. You ladies that are married, it is a good and honorable and glorious and fulfilling role that God has given you to be a wife. Even in the tough times. Because Sarah, she married a man that was filled with failure, who, hey, just in case you weren't with us in previous studies, she, he literally gave his wife away twice, told her to lie. And I'm sure there was a lot going on behind the scenes, but what God reserved for us was to show the failure of Abraham, to try to save his own skin. This is a guy that had quite a few major swings in his life. He didn't have the kind of steady, never make a mistake. And by the way, ladies, for the sake of studying Sarah today, you, you're married to an imperfect man. Now, some of the men are going, amen, pastor, preach it. They know how imperfect I am. No, there's like, no excuse to live in sin. It's no excuse to hide behind, well, you know, what pastor said, Abraham made mistakes. And No, it takes a lot of hard work in marriage. It requires humility. Abraham was known not for his failures. That's not how his story ends. He doesn't end up losing his wife forever. He, he doesn't end up living under the shadow of his failures. We're reminded Abraham, he overcame his failures through humility and brokenness and whatever they did behind the scenes, just like in your life. I don't know how you solve problems in your house. I don't know how you work things out. I don't know the kind of arguments you have. I don't know when you're raising your voice. I don't know when you refuse to talk to one another. I don't know when you let the sun go down on your wrath. But I do know this, in Christ, you work it out. And you have worked it out. And I think every marriage experiences the difficulties of the selfishness. Marriage is very simple. Selfish man marries selfish woman, creating selfish kids. That's marriage. And with all that selfishness ruling in the home, it's very difficult to walk in the spirit. I mean, it starts in the home, friends, and it continues in the home, and it ends in the home. It does, it's not your hour and a half here, you know, all all made up and like, oh, we see the best of you. I'm glad that we see the best of you, but sometimes we see the worst. And especially in the home. 80 years together, it's, it's a great encouragement to us. It's possible by the grace of God. It's possible. You wives didn't marry a perfect man and you men didn't marry a perfect woman. That's the way it is. And God gives grace for change. 
They shared an intense love for one another. But more importantly, they shared a love for God together. Individually and together. It could be said that Sarah too was a friend of God. And Sarah too was a friend of Abraham. And that was their marriage. Marriage is a partnership of three. There's the husband and the wife and the Lord. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 12, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And in marriage, it's necessary to have that threefold cord. God is the designer of marriage. He's the one that created it. So because he created marriage, he gives us the insights of what's necessary to enjoy marriage. And marriage is not, as it's joked about in the world today, like a ball and chain. And now you're moving into misery and you're leaving the freedom of singleness and you're going to live a life of misery. It's not God's will for you to live a life of misery. And it's just the, these things that we picked up from the world that we kind of dismiss, but, but they're deep. They're like, as we were saying earlier, you're like just believing a lie and not living by faith in the midst of the challenges and the difficulties. I like to, in difficult marriages, I always like to draw out a triangle for them. A marriage is best, is, is one of the beautiful illustrations is of a triangle. If you can get a picture of the triangle, at the top would be Jesus at the pinnacle. That's the goal. And then on either side of the bottom, you'd have husband and wife. And so many problems, by the, if you ever end up in my office or talking after the service here or with one of the pastors, you almost always end up in a pastor's office or under pastoral discipleship at the bottom line. And you're just going at each other, going at each other. And sometimes you just sit there and wait it out. Like, when, who, who's the first one that's going to you know, say everything they got to say? It's like, well, pastor, I need to come back for another time. I need another time. Well, eventually you're going to run out of things to say. And as soon as you're done, as soon as, are you done? Are you done? Yes, I'm done. Okay, well then let me talk for a moment. I'll write, I'll draw out that illustration. I'll show you. Look at the folly of what's happening here. Whatever the issue is, I don't even have any help for the issue yet. I just want to show you what it looks like when someone watches you argue. Believer follower of Christ. You're just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Neither one of you are getting closer to Christ. Just going at each other on that bottom line, bottom line, boom, 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 boom. Yet when one person decides to follow the Lord, which is often the case, isn't it? Because a lot of the marriage discipleship that takes place actually starts with one spouse showing up, not two, just one. And it's okay because God can work with one. And that's one of the distractions. We start going at each one, one another and one of you or both of you stop seeking the Lord. But when one of you starts seeking the Lord, you start leaving that argument and you start going up toward Christ. And really what the goal is, is to get you both seeking the Lord. That's why you get homework. Hey, why don't you guys just read the Bible? I don't want to read with him. Okay, just read separately. Just read separately. Well, I don't want to read anymore. What, what, what do you want me to do? Want me to read to you? Come to your house and read to you? Like, you got to do something if you want to see progress. Amen? Hello? So like, like you, if, if we wrote a book, we will never do it. Of all the things we've heard in our office, you would trip out. You're coming to me for help, and then I give you help, and you go, I don't want to do that. Then don't come to me. But you know, sometimes we just got to be patient, work with you, get you back on track, and we will. So when, you, when, you, when I can get two of you doing something for the Lord then as you, you can get this triangle again, right? As you guys are getting closer to the Lord, what happens? You're getting closer to one another. But you're not down at the bottom screaming and yelling at each other anymore, holding everything against each other anymore. You've left that. It doesn't mean it didn't exist and doesn't mean it doesn't need to be dealt with. It just means it needs to be left because you got to seek first the kingdom of God. Then all these things will be added unto you. It's not fix him or fix her. It's seek the Lord. That's how it starts. I mean, it's true for any relationship. It's true for any of our problems. You begin to seek the Lord, you're going to forsake your sin. You can't do it. You can't be in sin and seek the Lord at the same time. It's impossible. You're either sold out to sin or you're seeking, a, what did Jesus say? You said, prove it to me. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. He's going to love the one or hate the other. It's, you can't serve two masters. 
So when you start seeking the Lord, God begins to work. You give God a chance to work in your marriage, which leads to the question, and it's a good question. What if I'm married to an unbeliever, Ed? What about that? Where's the threefold cord there? Well, it's still a marriage of three. If you are married to an unbeliever, number one, you're still married. That's two. And you love the Lord. That's where Jesus comes in and sanctifies your home. That's three. It may not be the best, but let me just tell you this. Most marriages are not what you think of whatever the best is. Because whenever you're going through crisis, someone else's marriage is always better than yours. But you don't live with them. You don't know what they're going through. You can't be comparing. The Bible says don't compare yourself with others because that's not wise. And the other way you know, me describe it's not wise, it's foolish. It's foolish. So even in an unequally yoked, and the way we would address this is, if you're not married yet, do not marry an unbeliever. Don't even go in that direction. But if you're already too married to an unbeliever, do everything as much as possible in you to live at peace with him or her. Of course, there are times with maybe abuse or things that you might need to sort out with a general um, discussion, you know, general description like this, that it doesn't apply to every situation. You want to be in a safe place and you can sit down and sort some things out with someone. But most marriages aren't that bad. It's bad and hard because you're married to an unbeliever and immediately you're just like, I got to get out of this. And yet there's still a threefold cord, even if your spouse is not cooperating or saved today. And I'll tell you, in an unequally yoked marriage, as bad as it is right now, it would be worse without the Lord. That's why you have to think, God has not abandoned me. Maybe it's a wife today and you're thinking, but yeah, you don't know what my husband said about me or did. And Sarah would remind you, you want to talk about husbands? And the same with wives. You know, sometimes, many times actually, we'll receive phone calls here and time after service for prayer. Or even on the live radio, they'll ask the question or something around like this. They'll describe a situation and they'll say, is this grounds for divorce, pastor? Tell me if I can divorce. And the situation almost always is explained and painted in a way where the answer is expected You're expecting to hear, they paint it in such a way where they're just expecting, oh, I guess so. I guess you have your reason to divorce. And that's where the Bible would say, the first one to plead his case sounds right until his neighbor comes and reproves him. And I'm sure it's bad. I don't want to minimize that in any way. But most of the time, people that call with that question already have their mind made up and they're just wanting a pastor to affirm it. They're wanting a pastor to approve it. But I want you to remember this, even where there are grounds for divorce, biblical grounds, exceptions. I want you to remember this. You might even want to jot it down if divorce comes up in your conversation. Where there are grounds for divorce, you ready? Where there are biblical grounds for divorce. You guys with me so far? So you've come to the conclusion and there's a biblical reason for divorce. Where there are grounds for divorce, there are equal and even greater grounds for forgiveness. And I don't know how God's going to work it out. Don't misunderstand the simplicity of this Bible study with an answer to every difficult marriage that's listening to me right now. However, I am asking you to accept the simplicity of this marriage or this Bible study regarding your difficult marriage I want you to accept it as an invitation from God to take it back to the Lord. Because even with biblical grounds for divorce, at least now in the last 23 years, you will not hear from me, go ahead and divorce. That is not my decision to make in your life. It's my decision to make in my life, and I choose my wife any day of the week. And hopefully nothing drastic happens. We got to work it out, but we'll work it out. I choose my wife. And I've already told her if she ever chooses to leave me, I'm going after her. So (laughs) she can't get rid of me that easy. But we have a normal marriage and we have normal 
difficulties and we have challenges and we've been through a lot together. We haven't been together 80 years, but we've been together almost 40 years together, married and before we got married. And we've been through some bad, hard stuff. But that's the key, isn't it? We've been through them. And we're going through them. And we're living with them. And we're learning how to trust in the Lord in the different seasons of our marriage. Again, I want to speak to, and this is all after studying two verses. But it's so important. I didn't want to skip Sarah. We can go through the rest of the chapter quickly, but I didn't want to skip this. Because Sarah, you know, so many times pastors will just make dumb jokes about really beautiful passages of Scripture. And you know what happens when we do that? And I'm sure if you look back in older studies, this is something I've grown in and I've learned in and I'm repenting of, that maybe this is even an area where I got a cheap joke and I missed the opportunity. I missed the opportunity and discipled a whole group of people incorrectly to look at Sarah and look at her life and see the wonderful woman that she was. Some of you want to meet her in heaven, I'm sure. And yeah, maybe you'll ask the question, hey, Pastor Ed said this is this and this. What was the real reason? And you know, whatever her answer will be, it will encourage you. It will point to her faith in God. It will probably include, it was super hard. But you'll be in the presence of the Lord. You guys will all be rejoicing. We made it, we made it, we made it. And let our lives be an encouragement to others even after we die. That our, our lives were lived to trust in God. And I realize there's broken marriages here. You're on the other side of the divorce. It's very painful. You're unequally yoked. It's very hard. You're unequally yoked and you were married as unbelievers. Like you didn't even ask for it. It's just the condition of your life. But this is the condition of your life. God has allowed it sovereignly. He's going to use it in your life. He's going to strengthen you and make you a stronger woman and a stronger man. And if you need help sorting out abusive situations and those types of things, look, God never, never requires you to stay in an abusive situation. But you should talk it out. Ladies, you should talk it out with a godly woman. Men, you should talk it out with a godly man and pray through it from a safe place. Now, pick up in verse 3. It says, Abraham stood up uh, from before his his. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I'm a foreigner and a sojourner among you. Give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord. You're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, and he spoke with them, saying, If it's your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at full price as property for a burial place among you. And so it was important that Abraham act quickly as the body would soon deteriorate and decompose. The Jews would bury their dead almost immediately within 24 hours if possible, wrapping the body in spices and encasing the body in a cave. And there's this swish, swift transition in Abraham's life. It says that he's weeping and mourning, and then there's a quick transition. We don't know exactly how long this took place, but there is a swift trans transition even within the text before us that I think is important to draw out as well because it suggests to us that Abraham would mourn and grieve, but also would continue to keep on living. This wasn't the end of his life. It was the end of a season in his life, a painful one nonetheless. But he would keep on living. And that's an important part of the mourning process. I, I think we understand um, the stages of grief that have been presented to us. I think they're pretty accurate, even though they were written to us from a, sister, a woman that was not a believer, but she gave the, the stages of grief as denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. 
And I've done studies on this biblically on uh, grieving and such in other Bible studies, but you know, they don't necessarily have a beginning and an end. Sometimes they all happen together. I mean, everybody grieves differently. And that's why those of you that are ready to take that next step on the journey of your grief would be well for you to join the grief share class. So you can learn the wisdom of just some skills that we may not currently possess because we never experienced this before to just walk on the journey. But Abraham gives us an example. You've got to continue living. Often you'll hear that referred to if so-and-so was here, they would want you to. Well, this is demonstrated. Abraham did. He continued. It's not a sign of weakness. And it's not a sign of a lack of concern. And it's not a sign of, and I think if you've learned anything in life, everyone has an opinion. But also it's true in grief. Everyone has an opinion about your grief. But only you're the one living out your personal grief. And so opinions, you know, they might be valuable, might be helpful. They might not be valuable at all or very unhelpful. But I do know this, it is God's will for you to continue the life that God has given you to live. And Abraham shows us that. 80 years of his life. I mean, the majority, I didn't do the percentages, but the majority of his life, he's, he's lost. And he mourns and he grieves, but he needs to move forward needs to move forward. We see the same thing happen throughout the scriptures. We see that when Moses died, Joshua had to continue on. He took the people into the land of Israel. He took them into the promised land. It was important that they move forward. We see the same thing happen with the loss of Jesus at the death of Jesus, where the 120 continue to gather together and seek God and obey the final words of Jesus. They continued to live their life and God continued to show up. Not only that, but we learn from Abraham, he, he understood his role and place on the earth. He was a foreigner, it says in verse 4, notice. I'm a foreigner and a sojourner. And can I just speak to the current cultural climate that you're in today, that we are living in right now, one of the most difficult seasons that in our generation we've ever experienced? Things would be a lot better if you harnessed and grabbed this concept. You are a foreigner and a sojourner. This is not the end. You're just passing through. You're a pilgrim. You have temporary residence. Whatever is happening at the governmental levels, whatever is happening on the global levels, whatever is, ha- whatever is happening in this world, listen, is not the end. You're just passing through. And that helps give perspective as we've learned. It's so important to have the right perspective. Whether we're fighting a giant or we're living in a godless world filled with antichrist, <laughs> we got to have the right perspective. Because if we let the world bury us and we're just taking in information, taking in information, taking all what's happening in the world from a bunch of hopeless people that don't know Christ, what do you think is going to happen to you? You're going to become hopeless and you know Christ. Was there any more miserable place than to know Jesus Christ personally and be hopeless? The only other thing that's more miserable is a person that doesn't know Christ and is hopeless. He's a sojourner, a foreigner, a stranger. And that's one of our problems. Right? We don't want to be a stranger. We want to be wanted. We want to fit in. We want to enjoy all the things of life. And God says, yes, I've given you all things to enjoy, but you're a stranger. No wonder this is odd. No wonder it doesn't make sense. No wonder the ungodly mock and laugh at God. We're strangers, visitors, temporary residents that God desires for us with our citizenship in heaven to use our citizenship on earth as we're passing through for his glory. Abraham's the man of faith, loved his wife, mourning and grieving. And he desires to bury her and move forward with his life. And so notice, they're willing to give it to him, but Abraham says, no, i got to buy it. And I believe this is one of the passages in Scripture that David will later use as he buys an area for the temple. So I don't, don't give it to me. i got to buy it. It needs to be a, a legal, proper transaction. We need to do it the right way. And friends, let me just say that phrase, do it the right way, is God's will for your life. You've got to do things the right way. There is a right way and a wrong way. And followers of Christ need to choose to do things the right way. 
I know we can use a few things because it's coming up, but like believers in Jesus Christ, they don't cheat on their taxes. I don't even need to do a Bible study on that. That should be enough. We don't lie at work. We don't flirt with someone that's not our spouse. We don't course jet. Like you could go on and on. There's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And it's God's will for us to do it right. Do it right today and you don't need to worry about it again. You do it wrong today, you're going to worry about it the rest of your life until you get caught and found out. And then you're going to have to deal with the consequences of doing it the wrong way. It's always, everything in Jesus is yes and amen. The way of God, the way of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. The way of Christ, the teachings of Jesus, everything, all the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. You can trust him when you do things right. But Ed, it's going to cost me so much. It's going to cost you more to do it wrong. But Ed, you don't understand. I'll lose everything. But Jesus said, you want to follow him, you've got to lose everything in order to gain. And Abraham, he's going to do it right here. So they, they haggle, verse 10. Ephron dwelt with the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the son of Heth. All who entered at the gate of the city saying, no, my Lord, hear me. I'll give you the field and the cave that's in it. I'll give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I'll give it to you. Bury your dead. But Abraham bowed himself. And this is a place of humility. Don't miss that. He bowed himself down before the people of the land. This great prince, this great king, this great man of God, this man that is a friend of God, this man who's who's the father of faith. He bows down before these Canaanites. And he says, in the hearing of the people, he says, if you, verse 13, will give it, please hear me, I will give you money for the field. Take it from me and I'll bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham saying, my Lord, listen to me, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver. And I guess those who study such things says this was a ripoff price. Deeply, deeply overpriced. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out the silver in the name of the hearing. He got ripped off because he wanted to bury his wife, do it the right way. 400 shekels of silver, verse 17. So the field of Ephron was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field which were within, all the surrounding borders were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who were in the gate of the city. Verse 19, and after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is Hebron, the place of communion, the place of promise, the place of fellowship in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that's in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. So Sarah is laid to rest. I just think, taking the spotlight as we head out today, just backing up a little bit away from marriage and just think of relationships in general. Love is what binds us together. We're not going to make it without love. Love is the, is the lubricant, if you will, that helps keep us together when there's friction. The unconditional love. You know, you begin meditating on the word unconditional in any relationship God will soon begin to reveal to you how many conditions you've placed on that relationship. I challenge you to pray and ask God, God, show me the unconditional I love I have for so-and-so and show me where I don't have it. And he'll begin to show you how we have redefined unconditional as unconditional except or unconditional but just because we're human. And there's always this sense of wanting to be selfish and self-centered. How do we get away from that? The agape love of God. Love gives us the context of life and togetherness and hope. Even pain. There's no greater demonstration of love than the cross. The ultimate sacrifice. God reconciling man to himself. Abraham offered Isaac, remember, as a burnt offering. Nothing to be left over. He yielded everything to God. 
In his heart of hearts, he was trusting God with even his most prized possession in the moment. And here we are fellowshipping and praising God, gathered together, just enjoying growth, the spiritual growth that's going to come through a Bible study, through a time of prayer with one another, the spiritual growth that's going to come through singing songs together. And what binds us together but the love of God as we're growing in understanding. That difficulty you're facing is an opportunity for love. The challenge that you're going through, an opportunity to express love. I was even reading today in the Proverbs talking about, hey, you want to do something for your enemy? Love them. It's so contrary. But love is the key. And how does it begin? It's like, you know, Lord, forgive me for doubting you love me. (laughs) We come to our prayer closets with all our failures and all our difficulties and all our mistakes and all our doubts and all our fears. And maybe we plow right through them in all our requests. And we just got to, we're missing a step. Say, Lord, just forgive me. What's happened? I find myself distant from you because I don't believe you love me. I just don't experience that. I don't feel it. I've been so beat up by the world. I don't want to love anymore. I've beat up by other Christians. Trusted a Christian, he burned me. So I'm never going to trust another Christian again. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for that. Every time I've made myself vulnerable, I got ripped off. You know? Sometimes we over-exaggerate things. It's not every time. I feel that way. But you know, God allowed you to get ripped off. As hard as that is to receive. And perhaps it's just time to say, Lord, why did you allow me to get ripped off? (laughs) I don't like that. I don't want to be ripped off. And you can almost hear all the different answers that will come from heaven. And who gave you that to get ripped off? Oh, I think you, Lord. Yeah. So it really just belongs to me. Yeah, Lord. So I got ripped off. Yes, Lord, you got ripped off. You know, it's like, you just like if you just have a real relationship with the Lord, he's, he's going to draw you in to comfort you and remind you and give you the right perspective. And you can almost imagine with our holy imaginations some of the prayers from Sarah. God, why did you give me this man? I'm next in line for the king to take me into his bedchamber. And where's my husband? And God, you know, this is the second time he did it. Don't you love me anymore? And all the hurt and the pain could easily take you away from the very love of God. I mean, maybe you grew up in a very difficult home or Maybe your difficulty with God right now is because of the home you grew up in and the model of dad that you had. Maybe he was abusive. Maybe he left you and abandoned you. And you carry that hurt into your relationship with God. And there might be even a pattern, ladies, of being hurt by men and being hurt by pastors and being hurt by uh, landlords. I mean, you name it, just the enemy has just been relentlessly beating you down, beating you down so you don't understand the love of God. It's been misdefined for you. It hasn't, and it's the same with guys. It's not just exclusive to ladies. It's the same with guys where the enemy just wants to twist everything. That's what the word perverse means, you know. Perverted means to twist things, to take something and make it something that it's not in a wicked, evil way. And there's no more wicked, evil way than to twist our view of God and his care and his concern for us. God is faithful. He's ready to help you walk forward in the moment right now. I don't know. You know, we kind of use some of the solutions and maybe got a little laugh about people in my office, but I know if you walked into my office right now or came up here, I don't know the answer to all your problems. I don't know how to solve all your marriage issues. I don't know how to convince your spouse of XYZ or convince you of ABC. I don't know. But I do know a God in heaven that does. And I do know the baby steps to take that you will keep your your physical sanity and your spiritual vitality if you will choose to obey God in the little things right now. In that relationship, in this relationship, and you will just lay it all on the table with the Lord. And you just lay all your pain and hurt 
and, and you just talk about the things you've been carrying and you just open yourself up. And that could very well be the will of God tonight that as you were praying for dark areas, it's not necessarily hidden sin as much as the things you've been stuffing down, stuffing down and thinking if you don't think about it and you don't talk about it and it's always in the dark that you can just get on. And the Lord says, no, I have something so much better for you. I'm ready to heal you. And I'm ready to help you. And I'm ready for you to take the next step in your relationship with me, God would say. Even to the point where the Bible speaks about, think about this, those of you that are hurting and those of you that are overwhelmed by your past. Think about this. The Bible even speaks about having the Spirit of God so, so overwhelming you that you cry out to your Father and God, Abba, Father. That's like, calling your, that's like calling God the kind of intimacy that you would with your human father, like calling him daddy. That's what Abba means. Abba father, Abba daddy. It's intimacy and closeness and trust. And the Lord has that for us, women and men. And I just am so encouraged by this fresh look for me of Sarah. And you know, it reminds me in, memorials that we do all the time there's always such wonderful things to be shared about the people that have passed away if i have to say i'm not a big fan of memorials myself they kind of hurt and they're hard to do but um, there is a part of memorials that i love and that's to hear everybody's great memories and to see the pictures up on the screen and and it, it just to even get a laugh of something someone said or did and i'm just thinking even at sarah's death there's a lot of good coming out, but you don't have to wait for someone to die to say something nice. You don't have to wait. You can start bragging on people right now, expressing your appreciation for them. Just telling them how much you love them and how much they mean to you. You don't have to wait. You can at the end, but you don't have to wait. You can do it now. You can send that text message or make that phone call or look someone in the eye and go, you know what? You just, I love your sense of humor. I hate your jokes, but you're trying so hard. I love it. And just enjoy the relationship that God has given to you. Because there will come a day when you'll separate. There will come a day when it won't be possible. You'll have to be waiting until eternity to be reunited with them. And I just love this. The pain of death of Sarah. So much good comes out of it. Because you know what? Here in the 21st century, the death of Sarah, God is using to disciple and train you. <laughs> And say, okay, Lord, I get my eyes back on you. And so, Lord, I pray today, all that we've taken in, that truly you would have your way with us, that we would leave here more encouraged by the life of Abraham and Sarah. Even, Lord, just with us, that we wouldn't make excuses for our sin and kind of like, well, you know, Abraham did this and Sarah did that. It wouldn't become excuses, but it would say, but God, even in my imperfections, you love me. You're for me in Christ, not against me. As much as Abraham was a man of faith and a friend of God, how much more we have in Christ, in the new covenant, and the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all our sins. And that's where we leave ourselves today, Lord, under the cleansing work of your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.